0: It's Daily Thunder, thundering out the truth of Jesus Christ live every morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more about our discipleship programs or to support this podcast, visit Ellerslie.com. Now, here's Eric Levy. Welcome to the Friday edition of Daily Thunder. So this is the fourth part in a four-part Mini series on femininity, and it would call it The the Beauty of the Bride. And it's been a a beautiful uh, meditation, a beautiful reflection upon not just femininity in the male female uh, category, but in the symbolic dimension of the relationship that we as the church have with Jesus Christ, which I would say is the primary reason why there is femininity is to showcase the invisible realm. It has a purpose, a revelatory purpose to showcase the beauty of the dependent one, the weaker one that needs the groom, that needs the strength of his right arm. And that's, of course, the gospel is found in that. And we, male and female, of all of us in the church of Jesus Christ, are called the bride. And so, as a result, we all can relate to everything that is being taught. It's interesting because when you teach on masculinity, all the women can relate and apply it because this very man lives inside of us. And so it's a strange thing to tell a girl to be manly uh, any more than it is to tell a guy to be like the bride. Uh, But these these roles that we play, these gender roles, are critical in revealing how the kingdom of heaven functions, how the church of Jesus Christ is meant to function in dependence on the head, the bridegroom. And uh, also, we as individuals male and female, in our roles, whether it's in just culture, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in family, when we allow the Spirit of God to animate and amplify these dimensions of who we are in our creation, it's incredible, but the invisible realm is seen. The realities of the kingdom of heaven are realized. So on Sunday, we had a message called uh, The Winding Road, which sort of enunciated the dependence that we have upon the Holy Spirit, which was a beautiful start to this Series and then, we had uh, a Monday morning was a message called "Silent," uh, which is understanding. I mean, that's a that's a delicate topic with how Scripture talks about how the woman needs to be silent in the church, and we all feel uncomfortable. I mean, it's it's weird how it doesn't matter if you're a guy or a girl, we all feel uncomfortable with such a statement. It's like Paul, I, I don't know if that's the right thing to say, and yet understanding it in the global sense is recognizing the significance of position and role, that there are certain things that uh, it is actually appropriate for men to take the lead in. And you know we, we had a conversation afterwards, sort of off of the record, of if you travel, like I've, I've been over to in, in Asia, in Asia there's a lot of women that lead the church. And what is that saying? Are they just an unhealthy church? Well, if you go to the underground church in China and you realize that there's a lot of women that lead the church, and you could accuse it right from the beginning and say, hey, you guys are off, you guys are wrong. Or you could dig a little deeper and find out that uh, the Chinese government is rather smart. They're trying to take all the leaders and stick them in prison to try and shut down the church. And so should the church get shut down if all the men get thrown into prison and all the women say, not on your life? if I were to die, uh, do you think Leslie should just give up and roll over and say, well, I can't be the father of this home, so I'm going to forsake my family? No, she's going to rise up in the strength that God gives her. And so there's an appropriate way. God intended, for instance, a man and a a woman to get married and to have a family. If there's a father or a, a mother that are missing, that doesn't mean that it shuts down the family. It just makes it difficult, where God then has to step in with grace to make up the the difference. And so I've always called it a Deborah ministry. When a woman is put in the position that she needs to rise up and behave as the man would, it is actually appropriate for her to do so. And so in all these unique dynamics that we face, the key with silence is to understand that we're all supposed to be silent before the word of God. You see, God has something he wants to speak to this world, and it's not what we think. It's not what our philosophy may be. It's not the ideas of man. It's the idea of God. And so as a result, we learn to be silent and allow his word to speak through us. And so as a result, we all typify and showcase this idea of the bride. On Wednesday, we had a message called Pierced, which was going into the idea of the bondservant. And just even as we concluded that in Exodus 29, it talks about the uh, consecration of the priests where their right ear is submitted. So just like it says in, in Psalm 45, incline thine ear. And so what we see is the, the bride roll symbolized in the priesthood inclines its ear unto the high priest Aaron and he smears it with blood, symbolizing that he has an ear for the word of God. He has an ear for his master. And so uh, beautiful pictures of dependence. And this one, poured out, uh, is... Of course, touches on one of my favorite uh, themes in all of Scripture, which is Jesus Christ has given everything to you. Now, the least you can do is give everything to Him. It's our reasonable act of service to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. And so, for us to recognize that Jesus Christ literally poured out His life—it's a very unique mental picture. But that's actually the Hebrew picture for for generations before Christ came is the drink offering. It's, it's the pouring out. And as you see David uh, pouring out that uh, water from the well of Bethlehem, there's something to do with this idea of pouring out and relinquishing uh, something precious, which is very significant in our understanding, even as the bride. So uh, as a summary, the beauty of the bride, silent before the word, pierced by the master and poured out for the king. It's just an incredible enunciation and overview of the beauty of the bride. Song of Songs 112 uh, has a unique foreshadow uh, of this love relationship between a groom and his bride. And it says, while the king is at his table, my spikenard sends forth his fragrance. Now it's weird because we, we almost feel like we're in the New Testament uh, reading that, but it's like, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? And so there's this, this picture that Mary of Bethany is going to fulfill, is going to showcase, but she's in a sense in a role of the bride of Christ. She is showcasing the proper relationship, and as we will go through that today, it's offensive to some to, to actually pour out that spikenard is, I mean, is a crime uh, in, in many people's eyes, when in actuality in Christ's eyes, he sees it as right inappropriate. Romans 5, so speaking of poured out, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So it's not just that Jesus's life was poured out and we see out of his side flowing a river, a living river, blood water, uh, life water, because blood to the the Jew is life. So you have life water, a river of living water flowing out of his side. He pours out his life But then he pours out his Holy Spirit, and then he pours out the love of God in our hearts via that Holy Spirit. So what you see is a lot of pouring out. You see a lot of gushing. You see a lot of overwhelming floods. So there's also a lot of Mary's, which is not to be lost on us because Mary is going to be symbolic here. It's it's interesting that God would choose, like, this time period, you could just sort of see, it was like probably the cool thing to name your daughter Mary. Uh, I don't know exactly what was going on, but we have Marys everywhere. And what's interesting about that is, you know, just in every time period, there's a name that just sort of, oh, I like that name. And I don't know if it's it's also true in uh, ancient, uh, Hebrew, you know, the ancient Hebrew culture that names would sound good in certain generations, and then like the name uh Ezekiel suddenly went out of style it's like you know that's just not as nice sounding as it used to be it's sort of an old man's name don't you, you know how we have that uh interesting phenomenon like uh for us in my generation we would always sort of make make fun of the name Bertha and Helga uh and uh but I could just sort of see it that there's gonna be little girls named Bertha and it's gonna be precious it's like that is so cute because it's like this old person's name, but it's like a 120-year-old person's name. Once it gets to be like a 120-year-old person's name, then it becomes cute for a baby again. And then we go through the whole cycle all over again, right? Could you imagine a little baby named Bertha? Uh, oh, little birdie. Uh, see? I mean, I could I just sort of see it happening. Uh, <clears throat> so back in this time, we have a movement of Mary's. But what's so odd about that is what the name means. Because the name... Itself, I mean, to us, it's a beautiful name. I mean, hey, it's just very precious. It's it's a symbol of purity and, but, in God's economy, what He's doing in His grand tale is He seems to collect a whole bunch of Marys at such a time as this, and He's symbolizing femininity in its response to the Christ. So the girl, Mary, the chosen vehicle of God to reveal the Messiah to Adam's race, He is going to choose a young girl, and her name is Mary. Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Now, like I said, her name, and you guys have probably heard me speak on this before, but Maria, their rebellion. Almost like speaking of all women, their rebellion. She summarizes it. And then in the Hebrew, this is Miriam, if you remember Moses' sister. And so we're like, well, yeah, that has to mean something really good. It means rebellion, and so it's such a strange, jarring idea. Who's going to name their child Rebellion or their rebellion? I mean, that, that, but what's interesting is in the Hebrew culture, they don't seem to back away from naming their children odd names, like uh, Job, which is in the Hebrew, Iob, uh, means hated and despised. And I'm not sure what loving mother pinches the little cheek of her baby and names them, oh, Kuchiku, you're hated and despised. <laughs> and yet his whole life symbolizes something. And so as a result, in this culture, it's, it's fascinating because even when there is a, a dark cloud over a name, it's amazing how it becomes a picture. Like uh, Job lived; he's from the land of Utz, and Utz means the place of wood. So, you have the hated and despised from the place of wood. I mean, that's like the cross in a nutshell, and it's supernaturally overlaid on top of this story of a real man from a real place. Isn't that just incredible? And so, we're seeing a similar dynamic here where we have this picture of femininity, and femininity, up to this point in time, is carrying with it a bad reputation. Okay? It's still. Uh, having to lug around Eve's behavior. Okay? Could you imagine having to you know, tug that thing around? I'm sure some of the girls in here are like, yep, we still do. However, Jesus Christ is going to intervene on this exact point because you know, all of us as men, we could be carrying around Adam's sin, and we are. You could say, yep, yeah, we still are. In a general sense, we are, but in a redeemed sense, we are seeing a conversion of something. We are seeing a redemption of, of something the enemy meant for evil God is turning it. And so he is going to take the rebellious woman who was the carrier of a false doctrine, the carrier of sin if you want to say it that way, and he's going to convert her into a carrier of the hope and of the redemption. He is going to convert her into one who will reveal the proper response of the of humanity to the Messiah. Isn't that an incredible thought? All of these Marys that I'm going to walk through real quick, all in summary are going to showcase the redeemed. They're going to showcase the bride of Christ. They're going to showcase how we ought to respond to the living God. So there are Marys everywhere. I don't know if you've ever thought that when you're reading through the scriptures, but it's like, well, Mary, Mary, and then the other Mary. (laughs) That's actually what they'll say. And then the other Mary was there too. So Matthew 28.1. Now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now this isn't even the mother of Jesus. This is uh, the mother of what is uh, said Mark and James. I'm guessing James the less. And so because the mother of James and John, James uh, the greater, it, her name was Salome. And so we have this other Mary that shows up at the tomb. Now, if you read the other accounts, you recognize that there was, uh, I think, Solomay was also at the tomb, and then, I don't know, Claudia, if if that's correct. That sounds funny in my brain right now. But there were four, but there's different takes of this, but we do know that there is two Marys, whether they came from two different directions, all the different ways to look at it. However, we see these two Marys, and God seems to go out of his way in through the uh, book of Matthew in chapter 28 to say, Mary, Mary. Now, Jesus came from a Mary, and then Mary Magdalene becomes this incredible picture of redemption. I mean, can, can you, no one can argue that. I mean, he casts out seven demons from her. She is a very unhealthy woman, and yet she becomes like a chief cheerleader for the person of Christ. She loves this man, and she is willing to do whatever it takes uh, to stand with him. And there, it's even proven here. Right here, you see the labor of these Mary's to honor who Jesus Christ was. And so now after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week began to dawn, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary came to see the tomb. Now why why is that significant? Well, so what you have is you have Marys. You have these quote-unquote rebellious women or symbols of femininity, Eve-like femininity, right? The rebel, the one who uh, didn't heed the word of God but went rogue, And so we have this picture of it all over the place. And God seems to choose these Marys. It's like, what's her name? Mary. I would like to get her in my band. It's like, he seems uniquely attracted to Marys because he seems to be gathering together this picture of redemption. And so in this situation, you're going to see Jesus actually rectify something that was wrong all those thousands of years before. And that is the woman was the carrier of the fruit to Adam. And now in this situation, immediately following this, you're going to see that God is going to commission them first. Out of all the people of this earth, it's going to be a woman that is going to be entrusted with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That she is going to be the herald, the one that is the messenger of this massive triumph, the good news. And so she is going to be sent, these Marys are going to be sent to tell the apostles of the resurrected Christ. So what you see is God overwriting something that took place thousands of years before in the Garden of Eden. And he's going to take this picture of femininity and he's going to entrust her with truth this time. And so as a result, it's like, let's overwrite what the enemy meant for evil and let's see it turn to good. And so what we see again is the picture of the bride of Christ and of course there is the Mary that exemplifies being poured out so then we have these good friends of Jesus which is it's it's interesting because that is not common in the gospel accounts for it to be said that Jesus you know just had these buddies that he had these good friends but he did he had Lazarus who's who's one of his good friends and then he has uh Lazarus's sisters Martha and Mary and so there's all sorts of stories that get woven together because of their, their friendship. And, uh, but this is that Mary. And so again, she's going to be a symbol of something. And what we see is that Mary's are being redeemed. There is something that they are showcasing. In each of these situations, you see the receptivity of the mother Mary saying, yes, come in and enter my body and use me as your vehicle. Okay, Which is, of course, Christianity. In a nutshell, that's the bride of Christ. That's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to receive the life of Jesus. And then you see the Marys at the tomb. We are also supposed to believe. We are supposed to respond in faith to see the resurrected Christ. To mourn his death, but then to cherish his triumph. And then to go and preach the gospel. We're Marys. We are the rebellious that have been redeemed. And then you see Mary Mary of Bethany, and you see a woman who is willing to give up everything in light of who Jesus is. That she is going to repent of any confidence she's ever had in things of this world, things like spikenard. And she's going to place her confidence in the living one, in the risen Son of God. And so what we see is an incredible picture of sacrifice, and worship, and love, and faith, all exemplified in women named Mary. Okay, so what God seems to be doing in his grand story is compiling this and saying, guys, do you have any questions now? Haven't I made it clear that I've taken the rebellious woman and I have converted her? And I have made her a channel, a vehicle through which I will reveal my glory. You see, there's all sorts of things in life that we could trip over. And for instance, Gentiles, there's no way Gentiles could enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, they're Gentiles, unless they become Jews, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That would be a reasonable statement if you read the Old Testament. I mean, you'd say, yeah, you have to be a law keeper. You have to understand that God came for the Jews. And yet Jesus is going to overwrite something and he's going to actually do what he does for all people but not just all people and all nations, all tribes, all tongues, but I know this is going to sound funny if I say all genders, because there's only two, and I need to be watchful in how I articulate that. But in both genders, he is going to overwrite. Adam is fallen, and Adam becomes the chief uh, amongst the fathers, right? And his lineage is one of death. And God is going to bring a second Adam, or a last Adam, a second man. And he is going to start a new heritage of masculinity. He is going to start a version of godly masculinity that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. But we also see him doing this in and through femininity. And he is going to convert, he is going to restore, he is going to redeem because he intends for both man and and woman to actually be carriers of his life. And there is a way that we are designed to showcase in this natural realm the invisible qualities of God. He intended a man to do something specific that would reveal the kingdom of heaven in a way that only a man can. And he intended a woman to reveal the kingdom of heaven in a way that only a woman can. So it's hard to describe Adam when he was first created. Because inside of him was this rib. And have you ever thought that through? So what did he look like before the rib came out? Did he have a little bulge there, a little extra rib? One extra rib on the right side. I mean, that is the most bizarre thing. So I always get caught up in things like this. Like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Did Adam have a belly button? No, wait, did Adam have an extra rib and it like protruded out? And Adam's like, what's this? He kept bumping into things, you know, with it. It's like, what is that? And then God says, ah, it's not good that man should be alone. The whole while he had it in mind. But did Adam have femininity inside of him? I mean what, what a strange statement. Or did God take the raw materials out of his side? Picture of the cross, of course, you know that out of his side is going to come forth the bride. she's going to be made of spirit, bone of bone in the Old Testament, spirit of spirit, life-giving river of life-giving river and we are made anew in christ's blood. we are new creatures in his work on that cross. So we see a parallel. How all that worked in the Old Testament as far as with a rib, I mean, that's a little strange, right? However, we do know that God created male and female, and he did it on purpose. He intended us to work together, male, female, and not for female to attempt to be male, or for male to attempt to be female. Talk about messing things up and gumming up the system. You see, there is only one way. If all female dogs tried to act like male dogs, we would immediately start having a shortage of dogs. There is a need for every single one of us to function in the way that we are created. And so as a result, there is a need for us to understand our role and then to function fully in it via the Holy Spirit and in and through that will come forth the glory of God. There is no diminishment to masculinity or femininity in saying that. The fact that we as men have to acknowledge we are not God, that's not a diminishment of masculinity. It's just a statement of fact. Women have to say the same thing. They are not God. And yet, I could also say, well, I'm not a woman. Especially in this culture where you know, female pride is held a lot higher than male pride, right? And so, I mean, I, as Eric, I could say, I'm a, I'm a woman. Why can't I be a woman? You don't, you know, it would be really weird if you heard me say that, right? And yet that would be odd too. It'd be strange. It'd be a departing from sanity because I'm not created as a woman. I'm created as a man. And if I function as a man, then I fulfill my role and I showcase the glory of God. When I depart from that and I attempt to function in a role that I am not, well then all sort of sabotage begins. What I'd like to do here as we read through this is I want to read through the three stories of this exact scene in the New Testament and just sort of have us meditate upon them, because there's three takes of this. Now, and I've said this before, that when you give a story once in the Bible, it's a big deal. All a story has to do is be mentioned once, and it's a huge deal to us, because God is going out of his way, and he's singling out a story in all of history for us to notate, the Spirit of God is very strategic in everything he does in writing the Word of God. And so as a result, when there is a story mentioned once, it matters. Because if all that Jesus did was written down in books, the world could not contain them. That's a huge statement. It's hard to even comprehend. How much did this guy do? And yet what we see is that in three of the four Gospels, we are going to have a very specific, detailed account of this exact scene. So, what we see is a Mary responding to Jesus. And we're going to see it not once, but three times, which is God's way of taking out a highlighter pen and scribbling over it. It's His way of underlining it. It's His way of using a bold font. It's His way of using a, what, if it's normally 12 size font, this is a size, what, 24 font. God is going out of his way, so we're reading along in the text, like, whoa, 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 God, obviously you're wanting me to see this. And yet everything in scripture he wants you to see. So when he puts his highlighter pen, it's like when he says, verily, verily, or amen, amen. It's like, well, just amen is a big enough deal, but amen, uh, amen. This is a big deal. He is emphasizing something. So the three takes, Matthew 26, now, each of these could show all three of these, okay? But I'm trying to draw out maybe a different lens for each one, right? Matthew 26, amazing faith. Mark 14, stunning silence. John 12, profound worship. What we're seeing is, in a, is a, just through this one Mary, I'm not even using all the other Marys in this, but just through this one Mary, we're seeing a picture of the bride of Christ in a beautiful and wonderful way. So Matthew 26, the amazing faith. Matthew 26, 6 through 13. And when Jesus was in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, a woman came to him having an alabaster flask of very costly fragrant oil. And she poured it on his head as he sat at the table. But when his disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, why this waste? For this fragrant oil might have been sold for much and given to the poor. But when Jesus was aware of it, he said to them, why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, but me you do not have always. For in pouring this fragrant oil on my body, she did it for my burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So, when I'm emphasizing, now we know that the oil in this is spikenard because of the other two. We're all familiar because I. If you get taught by Eric Ludi at all, you're going to hear me bring up this story over and over again because to me, it's the essence of gospel response. And so when I'm sharing the gospel with someone, I'm going to have this in the back of my mind. And what do I have in the back of my mind? It's, you know, I don't know what Mary looked like. I don't know what the you know, perfume smelled like. I don't know what the room in which she did this all looked like. I don't need to know those things. I need to know that this woman had something that was Pisticos Nardos, in the Greek. That means it was an object of her faith. The spikenard was an object of her confidence, and she is going to pour it out. And every single one of us has something that we believe in. And oftentimes, it's not Jesus. (laughs) If we're lost, it isn't Jesus, right? And so what we have is self. We can do this, hey, I'm a good person. Or we have our medicine cabinet. Or we have you know, our political views and we feel virtuous because of it. We have our good deeds, whatever it is. We have the fact that we go to a church every Easter and Christmas. We have something that we are putting our faith and our confidence in. And Jesus says, repent and believe. Pour that out and turn to me. What you see this woman doing is taking that which is precious to her. That was blockading her ability to give herself fully and wholly to Jesus Christ. But when she saw Jesus, she saw the worthy object of her affections. When she saw her bridegroom, she was willing to give up everything and come and follow. That's amazing faith. Stunning silence in Mark 14. So this goes back to Monday when we had the message silence. Again, delicate issue. I've been covering a lot of delicate territory here. Some of you have felt very uncomfortable at times through my little series. But the word silence is it's just uncomfortable for us. And yet what we see is Mary demonstrates this silence in the most appropriate way. She is speaking in this situation. She's making a lot of noise. In fact, what she is doing is going to be heralded in three gospel accounts, right? So talk about making a statement. She's going on record and loudly, but she's doing it silently, okay? I want you to catch that. That is profound, and that's how we as Christians work. Jesus worked that way. The words I speak are not my own. They're my father's. He was silent before the Father. We, as the church, are called to be silent before the Word of God. We do not give what we think is wise, what we think is profound. We let him speak. And that is our great secret. Mary is a very unique testimony because we have two different accounts of her being accused and her being silent. Martha is like, Jesus, will you tell my sister? And guess what? Mary doesn't say anything in her defense. And then we have Judas, who we'll see is the one in uh, these next two accounts, who is actually upset and has indignation in him for the fact that she just wasted so much good spikenard. That was worth 300 pence or another 300 denarii. Okay, this is uh, like a waste. She doesn't say anything. She is silent. And guess who speaks? Jesus. So in both situations, you actually see Stunning silence, because I don't know how many of you, when you're getting accused by Judas or by your sister Martha, are going to just take it. Okay, and you're going to say, I'll let Jesus speak for me. What if people believe this? It's like floating, it's airborne. It's a false accusation. Don't they recognize that your motive is actually right? And yet she's silent. Isn't that just an amazing thought? This is in Mark 14, 3 through 9. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came came having an alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. So how are you doing right there? What you are doing is noble, it's actually right and appropriate. And you are led of God to even do it. it is a, it's a huge statement of sacrifice, of love, of worship. And yet, it, and they criticized her sharply. It's a hard moment. And yet, what we see is a picture of the bride right here. We see a picture of something profound. She is silent. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me, you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So, what we see is a lot that she is doing, though. We see an amazing faith, we see a sacrificial love, we see a stunning silence we see a worship and so what this woman has done is going to be told of her so one of the ways that i look at this is i don't i've never felt obligated to share about a, a lady named mary of bethany when i share the gospel in other words you you, know, you can interpret it that way i've never felt personally obligated to say oh and by the way before we're done talking i know i've only i only have a minute with you but i need to tell you about a girl named mary it's that I am going to in everything I do is lead as a memorial to her what she has taught me, what she has done before me in this story. In memorial to her, in that proper response of the bride, I want to lead them unto a proper response. I want you to take your spike now, go into your, uh, your, your pantry in your soul. Find whatever you've put your trust in. I want you to break it open on him. I want you to put your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to recognize that his word is superior. And it doesn't matter what accusations come against you, trust that he will be your guard and he will be your protector. Bend your knee, worship him with your life. That is only reasonable that you would do it. Okay, so that's how I am going to take that personally. And you know, if you felt that you should always share the story of Mary of Bethany every time you share the gospel, I have a hunch God's going to honor that. Does that make sense? I don't think that's a bad interpretation. All right, now in John 12, I'd like to emphasize profound worship. What we see is such an incredible picture of worship here. You see, many of us, when we think of worship, especially if you've hung out in the church or grew up in the church, you have a tendency to think of song, singing and bowing and raising hands and things like that, which is there's great. There's nothing wrong with that. However, this is a picture of practical worship. She is placing value on her king. She is anointing him. She is blessing him. She is loving him. And so what we see is an incredible outpouring of awe, of wonder. And as the hymn says, Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing my great Redeemer's praise. Oh, for a thousand bottles of spikenard to pour out on my beloved's feet. You follow me? This is, if you have something to give, worship with it. Spend it. Give it. And one of the ways that we worship God is actually by giving up our time. Giving up our comforts. Giving up our agenda and our future and our hopes and our dreams. We pour those out. And in so doing, we are showing value. Worship to the one that we adore. He is worthy of these things. You know, to take the time and to share the love you have for Jesus with someone who doesn't know him is a show of worship. Isn't that an amazing thought? In other words, just to give. That's what she is doing. She's given us a pattern that when this gospel is preached, we will do something in memorial of what we have seen in this story. We are seeing a Mary, one who symbolizes the bride of Christ, one whose name means rebellious, actually being converted, being redeemed, and her actions are now typifying and declaring the actions of another realm. They are showcasing what God intends to do in and through the bride of Christ. So John 12, 1 through 8, then six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus was, who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made him a supper, and Martha served. Isn't this an interesting take on the same story? So in the other ones, you know, we have a different angle. And, uh, you know, because we know that this is in a specific house, but we know it's in Bethany, and so we can put all these pieces together and come up with quite the detailed story of what's taking place. There they made him a supper, and Martha served but Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Well, there's a new piece of information. Lazarus was there. That's sort of fun to think of, isn't it? Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Isn't that another interesting thing? Because in the other one, it dumped it out on his head. And John, who is writing this years later, is also bringing in other perspectives here. He's like, you do know that Martha was serving at this, and Lazarus was at the table, And you do know that she also anointed his feet, not just his head, and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, what's amazing is Mary is going to showcase herself as being silent, but also at Jesus' feet. In this story, John seems to bring that out, is that in the Mary Martha uh, drama, she's sitting at the feet of Jesus. He listening to him teach the word. And she's going to be choosing the better part. Martha's doing something that's good. She's serving. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. She's preparing the house and the table, and she's a little stressed about it probably, right? She's bustling around doing something, but she's not choosing the better role. That what Mary is doing is in the better position. She's at his feet, which is a position of submission, Now, I'm not trying to make some statement here. I'm saying this is the bride of Christ. And as a result, we see Mary in both of these situations at the feet. Then Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. But one of his disciples, and in this one, John goes out of his way to tell us who it was, Judas Iscariot. The other two don't tell us who it was that was upset. This one goes into greater detail. Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box, and he used to take what was put in it. But Jesus said, let her alone. She has kept this for the day of my burial. For the poor you have with you always, but me you did not always have. So for each of us to recognize if we could take anything from this, it's like we actually want to behave as a Mary. We want to be the bride of Christ. Each one of us, I'm talking to me as a man too. I want to function as the bride of Christ as showcased right here at the feet of Jesus. This is a model for my soul as well. I want to function as the bride of Christ the way Mary did, the mother of Jesus, when the word of God came to her and said, would you yield your body to be the house of the Messiah? And she said, be it done unto me according to thy word. I want to be that in regards to my relationship with Jesus Christ. And I want to be like Mary Magdalene and the other Mary who when I see the resurrected Christ, I see it. I behold the realities of what Christ has done for me. That I would heed when he says, go and tell. That I would immediately say, yes, Lord, it would be my privilege. You see, what we see in this symbol of femininity is a picture of the church. We see a picture of our functionality. We are submitted to the head. We are silent before his word. We are at his feet with our most precious things, pouring them out and blessing him. We are believers. We believe he is able to do what he says he can do. That he is, has done what he said he did and that he will do what he says he will do we have confidence in this living God and we will prove it with our lives. And we will, the rebellious ones, be the redeemed ones, the carriers of life unto this fallen world. Father, I ask that you would work this same miracle in us that you did in Mary the mother of Jesus, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, and Mary of Bethany. Lord Jesus, that you would work this wonder and this awe and this worship and this love and this faith inside of us and that we would function as we ought to function and that the beauty of the bride would be showcased to this entire world and to the heavenly realms in and through us, the church. Lord, we love you and we submit to you today. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily weekdays at 8.15 a.m. and weekends at 9.15 a.m. Join us at live.ellerslie.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day week or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.